I'm listening from the UK. We all want our children to lead fulfilled lives, but we're surrounded by conflicting information and clickbait headlines that leave us wondering what to do as parents. The Your Parenting Mojo podcast distills scientific research on parenting and child development into tools parents can actually use every day in their real lives with their real children. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free infographic on the 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, just head on over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. And pretty soon, you're going to get tired of hearing my voice read this intro. So come and record one yourself at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash record the intro. Hello and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. And today we are going to do a follow-up to the conversation that we had with Dr. Marlena Gonick a few weeks ago on the topic of girls' relationships. After the interview, I asked her if she knew of anyone who was doing the kind of work that she was doing, but with boys' relationships. And she pointed me to our guest today, Dr. Michael Keeler. Having now really dug into his work, I'm so glad he's agreed to talk with us about friendships between boys in the middle and high school years, as well as how boys make sense of the world around them and their place in it. And this conversation does build on the one we had with Dr. Judy Chu several years ago on supporting preschool and early elementary age boys, as well as the one with Dr. Hilary Levy Friedman on how playing sports impacts our children in ways that we might not expect. And I will say that during the background reading for this episode left me with a really profound sense of sadness (laughs) about where our culture is right now. And I'm hoping that we can get to a greater sense of hope by the end of this conversation. So Dr. Keeler obtained his bachelor's degrees from Queen's University in Ontario and then taught high school English, both within Canada and abroad. He then studied for his PhD from Michigan State University and taught on the Faculty of Education and Women's Studies at Western University in London, Ontario for 17 years before joining the University of Calgary Workroom School of Education as a research professor in masculinity studies. Dr. Keeler's research addresses the intersection of gender and education and explores masculinities, schooling, literacies, men as change agents, counter-sexist politics, body image, health education, bullying, homophobia, and teen sports. He's co-edited several books, numerous book chapters, and many journal articles on these topics. Welcome, Dr. Keela. Thank you. And also here with us again is Caroline, who interviewed Dr. Bonick with me, also with Dr. Kilo, because Caroline's own master's degree research was centered on girlhood, but she is actually raising two male identifying children. So as soon as she heard that Dr. Kilo had agreed to talk, she volunteered to read all of his research as well. And so she's here with us again today. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you for having me. I'm back. (laughs) Okay, so Dr. Keeler, let's start with what seems like a super obvious question. But having dug deeply into your work by this point, I know it really isn't. What does it mean to be a boy? And related to that, what is doing gender? How do boys do gender? On the surface, that seems like a very obvious question. What's it mean to be a boy? And how do you do gender in the same breath? It's pretty complicated. The fact of the matter is being a boy and being a man involves a very strategic way of enacting or performing various understandings of masculinity. And what I mean by that is that as we grow up, we are taught various lessons. There are seamless lessons about how we should act and how we should react, how we should demonstrate a sense of power, a sense of privilege, And so for many boys, we learn uh, very early on, and I say this both as a masculinity scholar and as a parent of a son and a daughter, and very early on, we introduce our children, and talking specifically about boys in this case, about we introduce them to 
ideas of manliness or boyhood. And we do that through very concrete and oftentimes some very subtle ways in terms of what we give boys to play with, for example, and again, very early age, and what we don't give them to play with. And concrete example is whether we choose to give a child a truck. They seem very obvious to me. Go-tos, give the your son a truck, or whether you give your son a doll and allow your son to play with a doll and learn about nurturing and caring and being respectful and or you know again on the other end of the spectrum give them the truck and let them go off and learn about the active process of play and again that gets all embedded in how we think about boys and boyhood as active participants as opposed to passively nurturing caring and so Again, I see these seem very obvious or binaries. They're the sort of narrative of masculinity and femininity and our understandings of gender across identities, in many ways unspoken, in many ways unquestioned. Yeah, for sure. And it's not like this is a, a value neutral exercise, right? There's a certain type of masculinity that is perceived as the most masculine type. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. Again, for your listeners, much of this may seem like common knowledge. and But when you think about traditional masculinity or heteronormative masculinity, we think about a stoic, a man who abides by notions of toughness, non-communicative or silence, non-expressive about their emotional well-being, a man who wants to be in charge, take control, a man who's in the center and dominating, a man who you know, oftentimes is associated with being aggressive and assertive. So those are kind of some of the very traditional notions. You asked about what is our dominant understanding or a dominant narrative masculinity. And, and those are, again, very tried and true sort of notions of the right way of being a proper man. Yeah, to add another layer onto that, almost certainly white, right? And almost certainly heterosexual. And we sort of use phrases like, you know, boys will be boys, and it's the hormones. And as a way of sort of telling ourselves that this is natural and normal and inevitable. Is that right? Yeah, it's a really good point, Jen, and thanks for, I mean, just making it a little more the nuanced understanding. You write about heterosexualized masculinity and, and the way in which we nurture boys to play with girls and boys. I mean, oftentimes, yes, we'll say boys play with boys and that way boys can just be boys. But we also operate from a framework of our sons will grow up to marry a girl. In doing so, we actually discount the many possibilities for how our sons will grow up and with whom they might partner in their life. And so it's very restrictive and in many ways very damaging and limiting. And so again, along those lines, I think you point to sort of the heterosexualized masculinities, the whiteness in terms of how we draw on these prevailing images. To be fair, we're inundated with images through media constructions as you flip through, for example, magazines. And, and there has been a shift and there has been certainly a more public understanding about the need to acknowledge diverse masculinities. The fact of the matter is we are in uh, powerful positions as parents, for example, or as educators, as teachers 
teachers to be able to introduce different concepts and ideas about masculinity, what it can be, while also interrogating what it has been. And I'm sitting here wondering, did I answer the question that you just asked? Did I just go off on tangent? I think what was coming to mind as you said that was basically what it means to be a boy is to not be a girl right? That being a girl is less than is I need to distance myself from that as much as possible. It's not even so much being a boy is central to who I am. But as long as I know I'm not that, then I'm okay. Yeah. And again, we're all very familiar with the binary of masculinity and family, a boy, girl. And oftentimes when we're parenting and when we're raising uh, children and when we're educating, and I keep saying when we're educating because I am an educator. I am a high school teacher and I know the influence that we can have in these different capacities to actually acknowledge a much more fluid understanding of masculinity, much more fluid understandings of femininities and ways that we can actually enrich students' understandings of identities rather than limit them. And we do find or tend to sort of fall into that either or and never shall we wade within the gray zone because the minute you sort of allow, for example, going back to the earlier example, your boy to sit and play with dolls, especially if they're girls or there's this nurturing, maybe cooking or very traditional or non-traditional activities going on, the minute we wade into there, then there's others who will pass judgment and pull it back to raise questions about their identity because it often gets thrown at you. Are you confusing your son about what it means to be a boy or a man? And those are ways reinstating traditional normative masculinity, ways of some people trying to ensure that the gendered identities of our youth are not complicated. And in fact, that they're just much more uh, rigid and non-forgiving. So many questions come up for me, Dr. Keeler, when I'm listening. But one in particular is a concern that I hear sometimes from fellow parents is the idea that boys who don't abide to the codes of masculinity will get teased at school. How much does that play a role or how much does gender stereotypes or, or gender norms for boys around masculinity play a role in their relationship, especially at school? Again, a good question. And we as parents, educators, you know, we see that on the day to day. And we I think that's our fear or our worry about how will our child, however they want to demonstrate their identities, how will they be received by others? And those others are often more powerful. They're more powerful to pass judgment, to dismiss or degrade. For example, the way that I might represent masculinity. Others will try to discount my representation of masculinity because it doesn't adhere to those norms, as you're pointing to. And and we do worry about what if my son is teased? What if my son comes home having been bullied for not adhering to traditional norms of masculinity? And for me as an educator, we need not only worry about the safety and well-being of that individual, but we also need to address the much broader social context in which we find this kind of bullying and harassment going on. We need to address those understandings so that there's greater safety. And so I think it's a bigger issue. Yes, it's around gender. And yes, I would argue it's ultimately around power 
And it's ultimately around the privilege that some individuals have to push some use back into these boxes. And we ask the question, why? Why are some individuals so compelled and so driven to push those belittle people for not adhering to the restrictive ways of being. And you need to ask the question, what are they fearful of? What is their uncertainty? So much so that they feel like they need to control and they need to oppress others just because they don't act and behave or conduct themselves in the same manner with the same. And those traits and those ways of being a boy are not necessarily ones that we want to promote. We want to sort of elevate as the right way of being a boy and a man. We've had a long narrative of those kinds of traits. And I think we can sit now and reflect on maybe we need not be rearing children, boys who are so aggressive and dominating and oppressive. And there are, I think we're in a very, and I know, Jen, you start off saying that there's an element of sadness. I don't know if it's specifically to my research, but around the larger context. And I guess I come at it with a level of optimism that we're in a really rich time in sociopolitical context where, yes, yes, I see the bullying and harassment, but I also look at the Me Too movement, for example, and I think there is a real opportunity here for men to be activists, for men to be unlike the rest of the boys, and for boys and men to be able to find their voice to speak up. So again, I guess I try to sort of look at what are the possibilities, while I also acknowledge the violence against women, the sexism and misogyny. Those are long, long stories. And and I think for me, with my research and looking at ad masculinities, you know, university age men, I think there's real potential for us to shift the dialogue. (laughs) Let's see if we can get there. (laughs) I definitely appreciate your optimism. And I think I noticed that in your work, that sort of theme around ways that we can resist sort of the, and the counter narratives to masculinity. One other question I have that's come up for me is, you know, there's the safety aspect in schools. Do you think that more talk around greater social context and around the codes of masculinity would help with the boy problem, quote unquote, or bullying in schools if that discussion was more normalized? Most definitely. I've been out in um, schools and I've spoken with classrooms of youth and I Remember this one situation where I was in a classroom just in a local school and so I was in, in the grade seven class and really interesting because I asked everyone to raise their hand and show me if they've been marginalized or or pushed to the fringes or felt they had been because they didn't adhere to the rules. The majority of the students put up their hand. They said when we start talking about it, it gave them a chance to really say, well, I didn't want to join in on the joking, or I didn't want to join in on there's some chanting they're talking about sort of thing. And when they choose to sort of step away from those rules. So to your point, Carolina, I agree. I I think the more we have these conversations, the more we talk about gender diversity, about, you know, respect, about acknowledging privilege and how power manifests itself in the day-to-day interactions, the more I think that we're going to be able to normalize a more respectful and safer communities in which um, students are learning that those rules that, in my case, you know, I had to navigate 
as a adolescent boy. I mean, they're not keeping the stranglehold the same way they did 20 or 30 years ago. And so I agree with you. I think that greater conversation, a more honest and public dialogue. And I think you've probably seen from some of my research and some of my work that I do in communities. These are the opportunities when you actually have an open public dialogue where it helps to allow people to sort of express what their concerns are or uncertainties are. And also it allows us to shift and grow our understandings around gender identities, around masculinities, plural. And you'll see in a lot of my work, I refer to the plurality of masculinities as opposed to the singularity. Yeah, I absolutely agree that dialogue is needed. I think the scary part for me in what you said is the boy who doesn't want to go along with the teasing and the put downs, but does it anyway, because the consequences of not doing it are too scary. What I want to acknowledge to kind of pull us back a little bit is that masculinity hasn't always been this way. This hasn't always been what it's like to be a man. And I actually didn't know this until I started researching for this episode that a couple hundred years ago, men used to have deep, deep friendships with each other, used to sleep in the same bed as each other sometimes, write letters to each other, referring to each other in the most loving, vulnerable terms. Can you talk a little bit about the way that mental and physical affection have shown up in boys' relationships and men's relationships? Yeah, you bring in sort of broader historical context. And I think it's really useful because I think it also points to the intersection of class, socioeconomic status. And today, I mean, you'll see, for example, some men will be going to the opera or they will be doing ballet. And But which men are they? And would working class boys be able to perform ballet? And what are the complications? Again, so that's the intersectional part of this. And so to your point, Jen, I think, you know, what we need to be aware of is, is how do we nurture and support while acknowledging that there are class, race, sexualized based understandings of gendered identities. And so we need to, as individuals, as parents, teachers, acknowledge and and be aware of how those various contexts can inform and form certain masculinities. And I say that having done my research across different schools and, and looking in different countries about what and how are men able to shift the narrative and what kinds of privilege. For example, I'm doing some research in the UK right now and looking at athletes and addressing homophobia and the ability to address homophobia in team sport. And we need to acknowledge the fact that some men in privileged positions because the elite athletes are able to take that lead. The fact of the matter is that we need to acknowledge how we can actually leverage those positions to reconfigure power arrangements, reconfigure uh, those gendered contexts in which we operate. And that goes for the workplace, as well as in the sport context, as well as in the informal context, those spaces in which men are able to. And you have to pull me back, Jen, to your question. (laughs) Because it does go to how this narrative of masculinity and the ways in which we understand masculinities have emerged and evolved. Mm-hmm. And we might even say they've regressed in many ways because the kind of misogyny and the kind of sexism that we, for example, might see on university campuses and this kind of dismissiveness of it 
it's only a joke. We need to look very carefully at the kind of power dynamic that exists there because it's not only a joke because we know the ripple effect and we know how these kinds of moments in time can really demonstrate a much longer and much bigger problem. Yeah. So sorry, Jen, please <laughs> go back because I know we're talking about the historical context. Yeah, I guess I want to try and pull those two ideas together and connect them. I'm thinking about awareness in of homosexuality in the 20th century and how men started to be constrained in the way that they presented themselves because I can't be female, girlish, that's really bad. And if I'm gay, then that's pretty much as bad as being feminine. And so you were then talking about the privileged people who are socioeconomically advantaged and also who are elite athletes. They have sort of proven themselves in a way to not be gay, right? Because if you're at the top of that heap, then you've sort of demonstrated that you have the prowess to be a real man. And therefore, even if you are gay, you've distanced yourself enough from that idea. And so we have this real tying of masculinity and sexuality. And all of a sudden, it is not acceptable to be physically intimate with another man, to be mentally and emotionally intimate with another man. I guess that would be how I would connect those ideas. Excellent. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) I really appreciate that. It's really helpful because two things. One thing is that you remind me of the fact that sort of emotional connectedness and that kind of tension for many boys and men and for educators is how do I encourage and promote, for example, boys to be expressive, to be able to find different ways to express, for example, frustration, for example, to express disappointment in themselves that don't fall into what we have been taught, which is put your fist through a wall, strike out at someone. And again, this is what we've been taught. So, you know, for me, this involves re-educating, re-engaging, and not only boys, but because we do, boys do feel pressure from others to behave certain ways. There is this assumption that girls want me to be manly. Girls want me to take control. And there's, again, these are misunderstandings. And while I'm not dismissing the fact that perhaps some girls, some women do want that, we also need to ask the question, why is it that we need to adhere to some of those very traditional ways of being a man? And where are the pressures coming from? And so what I'm trying to point to is that we need to acknowledge and better understand those pressures rather than, and I think you mentioned it nicely earlier, Jen, just assume that this is very natural because as my research argues, there's more purposeful ways that we as teachers, parents promote and nurture specific ways of being because again, as you mentioned, we know the consequences of not adhering to those traditional notions of femininity and masculinity. So again, thinking about expressiveness and how we navigate that sort of sense of there's a wellness to how we're able to express ourselves. I have a son who is 19 and his ability to be able to say, I love you publicly and uh, whether he is pulling back a bit or not inside, there is no fear that I see. He's quite confident and one might actually say courageous 
to be able to publicly express that kind of love and investment in our relationship without worrying about how he's going to be judged as less than a man. Yeah, I think that points to the importance of girls in navigating all of this, right? Girls, to some extent, are the ones who are doing this policing of boys and their role. And in a number of the papers I read, there were boys who had formed close relationships with other boys and who had said, you know, I can tell my, and it was the paper was about bromances, I can tell my bromance anything. I have to present a certain view of myself to my girlfriend. Otherwise, I'm she won't give me sex. <laughs> it was basically what it seemed to be, that she was the gatekeeper of sex and that I'm going to present this image of myself that she wants to see. I'm going to be lovey-dovey and nurturing, not say that I'm going to be leaving next year to go traveling and not tell her I'm taking drugs or whatever it is, because then she will police my behavior and say that's not acceptable and then I won't get laid. Yeah, along that line, I mean, you bring up the idea of policing, and I think it's a really useful term. I engage with that in my research. There's bodily surveillance, how boys monitor other boys' bodies in, for example, locker room spaces. And we are constantly surrounded by the gender police. And those are other people who are watching how we express ourselves, how we talk about sports or don't talk about sports, our inability to engage in conversations, for example, about mechanics, for example. And so you will, and there's this kind of calling out someone, they're not able to act like the rest of the boys. And again, as you mentioned, this happens both within single sex gatherings, boys among boys, but also across gendered settings, where there's an assumption or an expectation for boys to conduct themselves in certain ways. And again, I think this is part of the hard work of shifting those understandings or allowing us to interrogate and ask ourselves, why do you expect that boy to be that way? Why do you expect that boy not to be able to cry, not to be able to care so deeply about a dog, for example, and those kinds of things. So I don't want to go off too far there, but this does, I think, shed light for many of us on the ways that we either perpetuate or hold up certain models without really questioning and goes back to, is this really biological or do we actually have a hand in sort of changing how we want our youth to engage? And it's also about that issue of power. It's also about changing the conversation where your son or, or the man in the boardroom doesn't need to be that center of attention. He doesn't need to be the one leading all the time. And I'm not saying don't be a leader. I am saying think hard about the turn taking when you show respect in those spaces, because it doesn't make you any less of a man if you're not the one who's the center of attention and not the one having to demonstrate your authority over knowledge or over others, for example. It does seem to me, Dr. Keeler, that a lot of conversations around boys, whether that's in schools or in, in other spheres, are really limited to a very black and white or reinforce the gender binary, right? And are very black and white and are related to those biological understandings of boys um, and girls as, you know, biologically different. How much does that play a role in their friendships? What can we do to expand that? That's where I get stuck as a parent in seeing how young it starts to happen, that socialization, that the gendering. My son is almost six 
And so him being school age now, I see it happening so much more. And it's definitely like Fury as a parent who grew up as a girl and, and is very aware of the codes of femininity. And I'm now just learning about this other side of the coin, but then trying to think about it in a more fluid way. So I'm thinking about, you know, how I can expand my own thinking to support him but also how other people can as well. It's a lot of work. When we think about gender and we think about gendered identities and when we think about how do we support diversity, it's a lot of work because it involves risk. It involves courage. I say that when I think about whiteness, when we talk about whiteness and privilege, that's a lot of work. And that's a lot of discomfort that some people don't want to engage with. Similarly, the parallel is with masculinities. It's more work for us to interrogate being a boy, being a man, whether it's in formal or informal settings, or to interrupt those conversations because they create discomfort. It's a pushback on patriarch and people oftentimes take offense. Well, this is the way it always has been. So why do we have to change it? But this doesn't necessarily mean it's right. It just means that it's been comfortable this way and no one's ever questioned it. And so to your point, Carolyn, it involves work either way. What we're not acknowledging is how seamlessly advertising has contributed to this binary. Unquestioned, our experiences are when we go into shops and they have a blue aisle and a pink aisle and no one looks for where's the gender neutral aisle we just go well that's the way it's always been and or our i want to say nappies the diapers you know they're decorated with feminine images or masculine images and when we just adhere to those so but we very quickly go to well i better get my son the one with the bob the builder on it we tend to just accept that as well it's always the way it's been so it is work but i would argue it's work however you want to whichever aisle you want to walk down and you know i think about my own children you know thinking about their gendered identities and what i wanted to support in terms of my daughter's independence my daughter's willingness to engage in a range of very active activities that was a lot of work and i do recall distinctly having a teacher say in passing she said well your daughter is very active, as though that was a negative. I did say to that teacher, and this was earlier on, she was about eight, nine years old, and I did mention, I said, would you have made that comment if my daughter was a boy? She paused and she said, you're probably right, right, I wouldn't have. And I said, something to think about, isn't it? Yeah, we kind of have these assumptions about what children are like based on this natural hormone-driven process. And I'm just thinking, actually, I have a, open a page on my notes from your one of your papers. Boys are seen to need action-based learning rather than docile literacy-based tasks. You were analyzing some guidelines from, I think, the Ministry of Education in Ontario. And that makes it into a government paper. And so, of course, it's right. And so the teachers have to follow it. And <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere all around us, isn't it? Yeah. And again, I think that's where on our shoulders as researchers, as educators, as parents, you know, in the day-to-day interactions to really sort of question about what are we supporting? What are we promoting here? And, you know, it's very easy to fall into that trap of only providing certain kinds of books 
for your children. Again, you think about in terms of racialized identities, you know, look at the stories that you provide and what are the narratives in those storybooks that you give to your children? Who's visible and again, who's invisible? And, and what does this tell us about what we are valuing in the day to day? And so when our children go, well, I never saw you know, black masculinities or but they would say, I only saw white boys or I always saw white girls in those conversations. So again, that's called binary. So I think we do need to really acknowledge our active role, our active ways in which we engage or disengage, the ways that we look to the boundaries and the ways that we see who's still on the fringes and why are they there? Because it's not just by chance, it's on purpose. We have to say who remains in the center. We still have misogyny. We still have patriarchy. And we still need to continue to raise these questions in order to sort of shift the narrative. I notice it in the book, and that's my thing. I love to analyze text and specifically like children's books. But I also notice it in television and just, again, the aggressive messages that are geared toward boys in terms of those action-based messages do you have any tips for parents who are trying to navigate this and, you know, in their own lives, but also to support their boys and maybe their resistance to those norms and to those messages? The tip question. <laughs> As an educator, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm very reluctant to say, here's some tips, do this, because someone will come back and say that didn't work with this one or that didn't work with that one rather than it really helped you sort of question and think, I'll steer away from giving tips. I will say that, you know, even, and I used to be a high school English teacher, I think just in terms of the kind of narratives, the kind of stories, the kinds of active engagement that I would promote in my classroom or encourage outside of the classroom, that I really did try to think hard about work groups who's working with whom. And I think I took more of a disruptive kind of approach because we know what the tried and true patterns are of, oh, the cool boys all gather together or this cluster of girls will always go together and they dominate those spaces. And so my responsibility uh, as an educator was really to think hard about what's at play here. And going back to what I said earlier, it is a lot of work. It does involve some disruptive thinking, some disruptive play, for example, to challenge those assumptions. I think as Jen's mentioned to whether we think these are just biological and it's just hormones at play here, we know that we can shift that conversation. So for, for us as educators, before we just immediately go to the boy books, maybe this will date me, but I know some industries talk about chick lit and the girls literature. I think those are really problematic kind of ways that industry subscribes to this notion of what is femininity and it doesn't do anything to disrupt. Well, actually boys would like to read about relationships. That's another way that they actually learn how to have healthy, respectful relationships. But if we put the bro books over here and the chick lit books over there, I mean, we're already setting ourselves up for failure because we're all smart enough to say, I think it's safer to go here because that's me. I see myself there, especially if they're white privileged and we don't look at the racialized narratives. That's my no tips. Maybe just sort of pushing back on some of 
the sort of industry and the ways that we have these rules in place that, you know, for far too long, we've not questioned. And I would say that here comes that optimism part again. We are in a, a time where we can actually raise our voices to push back on what we see as industry type. Well, that's just the way it is. And I say that when I think about, for example, there's lots of campaigns out there. I mean, we saw it with, you may recall the Gillette commercial around be the best that you can be sort of thing. I mean, there's a lot of uptake on that Gillette commercial and lots of uptake in terms of how people thought that was painting all boys with the same broad stroke. The fact of the matter is, I mean, those who push back to say, this is an unfair representation of boys. It's really interesting because that's a very defensive response. And what we ought to be thinking about, it's a fair representation because it actually does uh, demonstrate how we've moved along as boys and men in these relationships. And I think it's useful, again, going to what you were asked about earlier, Carolyn, those are the kinds of moments where you can have conversations and debates about what that demonstrates. And, you know, there's many campaigns around violence against women. And we really need to engage with boys and men as activists because more um, agencies are acknowledging is boys and men are a part of the conversation. They're not just the problem. The problem is a societal understanding. And so it sort of traverses all spaces and it's up to us to invite dialogue with boys and men to allow boys and men to see that you don't need to be that way. And, and that kind of reminds me that there is no real answers here. Just and started to reinforce your, your point about tips. Like there's no real answers. And also that there's agency in negotiating, you know, gender. There is active, there's a lived experience along with that. And it sounds like you're saying that it's important to sort of point that out and, and talk about that. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, my research shows that the boys are willing to do other than what the other boys do. Boys actually have agency to be unlike the rest of the boys. It also points to what I would suggest as being a bit courageous. It's a bit ironic, right? And I think in a TED Talk that I do, I ask the question, why don't we change the rules? We know what the rules are as boys and men, but why won't we change those rules? What does it take for boys and men to say, I will not be that boy? And so having that agency and having the courage, and shouldn't we be encouraging our youth to have the courage to be unlike the rest of the boys? And because we already know what some of those boys have done. We already know what some of those boys have done to damage other people's lives. For example, the circulation of sexually explicit images. You know, just because you're part of the boys group and maintaining your own safety in those spaces and, and being among the boys, we know how hurtful and harmful those acts are. But for many boys, they haven't been encouraged or supported enough to say, I will not be that boy. I think for me, that speaks to the biggest opportunity we have as adults in this situation. I really see this whole thing as sort of a crisis of caring. And that if boys know that somebody deeply cares about them and that it's okay to deeply care about other people, 
then a lot of this other stuff seems to sort of melt away, right? In the research, there's a strong theme of boys not knowing if anybody cares about their father spending evenings at the pub with, you know, with his mates. And he's never said he loves me. It seems like my sisters can have good conversations with my mom, but I've never been able to do that. This real theme, like I am on my own. And then that gets reinforced as they police that again with other people. You need to be on your own. You need to show that you are big enough, strong enough, good enough at sports, all the rest of it. And so when I see research that says, you know, that the answer here is to have a no bullying policy. (laughs) To me, that's like, well, isn't that just kind of saying, you know, let's push the problem down here and pretend it doesn't exist anymore. That if instead we were to have real relationships with children where we really care about them, then that would provide the model and and not just in, oh, yeah, they're my kids and they're my greatest joy kind of way, but in a way that actually demonstrates what it means to care for them and to show them how to do that with others. Is that heading in the right direction, do you think? Yeah, most definitely. And again, another researcher, Niobe Way, she's written about male friendship, and she talks about the need. And we know through our research within masculinity's uh, scholarship about boys yearn for close male-male friendships, close intimacy, but have been so schooled in masculinity That there is that, again, I go back to what I said earlier, that fear of forming that close bond because the fear is that homophobia gets operationalized and there must be something wrong with you or you're less than a man because that's not what boys do. And there needs to be a much more, I want to say, louder voice to say that may not be what boys have done in the past. That may not be the way boys have had friendships in the past, but it can be the way boys can form relationship now and in the future. So I agree with you, Jen. I think that there is a need to, again, reconfiguring this kind of relationship that we have with other boys, as well as a relationship that we have with ourselves. The ability to actually sort of look inwardly and be reflective as boys and to actually use that as a starting point to say, this is how I want to change the kinds of relationships I have, not only with myself, but with others around me. And you think about gendered identities. I think this is a really powerful starting point. But we also need to give our youth the license to have those conversations. And I think that ties back to what you said, Carolyn, about having dialogue, because we all know far too long silence has been a powerful sort of restraint. If we don't talk about it, it must not be there. Yeah, you can say that about violence. If we don't talk about it, there must not be any domestic violence, you know, because numbers don't show it. Just because the numbers don't show it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? And just because those sexually explicit images aren't being spoken about by youth, we know it's happening and we can't fall back on it's just a part of the stage or a part of the culture because we do have opportunities to change that culture. And I think that also involves, just to go back to something you said, Dr. Keeler, sitting with discomfort as a parent and maybe as an educator as well, and having courage to stay with discomfort. Yeah. And Bell Hooks talks about the power of discomfort. I mean, if you just think about how often we sort of rely on if everything's comfortable, that's right. Discomfort can be a powerful learning opportunity. 
Yeah, I totally agree. As we wrap up, I, I want to push it back just a little bit on this idea of comfort because yeah, in a way it's comfortable because I'm doing the same thing everybody else is doing, right? I'm looking around, yeah, this must be the right thing to do. This is what everybody else is doing. And also it's hurting me so much. <laughs> There's still discomfort there, right? It's just in a different way. It's, it's a internal discomfort, even though everybody else around me is telling me, yes, you're doing it right. This is what it's supposed to be like. I see it as sort of a different form of discomfort where I'm looking around, oh yeah, everybody else is doing it different. I'm going to be kind of out there by myself. That's not comfortable. And yet in myself, it feels more right. And we need to start saying that discomfort can be better managed. And the more other people, for example, they respect what you say, where you disrupt some misogyny, the more we start seeing that people say, I really appreciate that you said that in that meeting. I really appreciate that you spoke up. The more we see the communities growing where others say, thanks for saying that, you know, the silence is deafening and the silence is damaging. And, you know, and it just makes me think about like body image issues with boys. Just because we don't talk about them doesn't mean boys don't have body image issues. Mm-hmm. We've got many boys who fear and struggle internally. And it's up to us to be able to say, I hear you, I see you, and I want to make this a conversation that we can have so we can address these issues. And, you know, again, I think that goes back, Jen, just to that other example. It's like, you can continue on saying, I should have spoken up, I should have said something, but until we shift the group dynamics for those situations where it's respected and not only respected, but it's looked for other people to speak up. And that's why I said earlier about I think we're in a really rich, rich socio-political time where we have opportunities to raise our voice and be they organized or unorganized, be formal or informal, where we can create and we should be nurturing youth to have a voice, to see the injustices, to see the effects of heteronormative masculinity, and also to see the possibilities you know, that we can change those consequences. Those consequences can actually be validating and valorizing different forms of masculinities rather than maintaining those privileged notions of what it means to be a man that we know for far too long has allowed for, you know, a lot of hurt and a lot of unspoken pain for so many. Yeah. Thanks for that. You're teeing up beautifully an interview I have coming up in a couple of weeks with Dr. John Wall at uh, Rutgers on the topic of childism and how we can instead look to our children as uh, useful sources of information about what we want the world to be like and what they want the world to be like. (laughs) And we can look at them when they're so young before our culture has sort of got its hands on them and (laughs) manipulated them into being a certain way that isn't necessarily the way they want to be and that we can look to them as, as a source of truth on that. Yeah, thanks for that. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your ideas with us. We didn't get to half of the stuff we wanted to talk to you about reading and <laughs> practices that happen in school, but it was a really rich conversation. I'm grateful for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy meeting most of you. Thank you. And Caroline, thanks so much for digging through all the research again <laughs> and coming back and asking great questions. It was good to see you. Thanks, John. And so listeners can find links to Dr. Keeler's work and all of the papers that we've discussed today at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash masculinities. We know you have a lot of choices about where you get information about parenting, and we're honored that you've chosen us as we move toward a world in which everyone's lives and contributions are valued. 
If you'd like to help keep the show ad-free, please do consider making a donation on the episode page that Jen just mentioned. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast.